I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, how humans evolved through fire, language, beauty and time with Gaia Vince and her latest book, Transcendence. Gaia Vince is a science writer and broadcaster interested in the interplay between humans and the planetary environment. She has held senior editorial posts at Nature and News Scientist, and her writing has featured in newspapers and magazines, including The Guardian, The Times and Scientific American. She also writes and presents science programmes for radio and television. Her research takes her across the world. She has visited more than 60 countries, lived in three, and is currently based in London. In 2015, she became the first woman to win the Royal Society Book of the Year Prize solo for her debut, Adventures in the Anthropocene, A Journey to the Heart of the Planet We Made, which you might have heard on Little Atoms about five years ago. Her latest book, Transcendence, How Humans Evolve Through Fire, Language, Beauty and Time, we're going to be talking about today. Gaia, welcome back. Brilliant, lovely to be here. Tell us what the idea behind transcendence is. Well, so as my first book, as you mentioned, was about the Anthropocene, the the way that humans have changed the planet. This really was a quest to answer what to me is one of the biggest questions. You know, why, why did this one smart ape go on to change the world? How did we become the creature that created the Anthropocene. And so really it's about our transcendence. It's about how our evolution took a different trajectory from all the other creatures um, on Earth and, and followed this cultural evolutionary pathway. And as we go through the book, there's you look at certain, certain ideas, um, the book's in sections of certain ideas, for instance, art, and not necessarily like, you know, why humans do art, but how art has helped advance our evolution and um, and we'll do that as we go through the various chapters as well but to begin with I want to talk about I mean you just asked this question in your description there as to why why it was that one of the key things is our brain gets bigger at some point in in hominid evolution and so let's talk about ideas why our brain got bigger but say a chimpanzee's brain didn't get bigger. Yeah, well, that's that's a really big fundamental question, isn't it? Because all of what we see around us, this hu- whole human world depends on our brains because that's where it came from. And I'll, I'll talk about really what, what that means because it's not our individual smarts. It's mm. actually the fact that we can rely on our collective brain. So it's us as a collective 
that have managed to produce all this. It's not you or I as individuals. But of course, that still relies on having a big brain. But a big brain is incredibly energy intensive. Mm. So if you think about um, the amount of fuel we need to keep our bodies going, well, a whole 20% of that calorific content is needed only for our brains. So in order to get this, uh, this, this, uh, to fuel this huge brain, we needed a lot of food. And if you look at what food was available um, at this time in the Pleistocene when we were, when we were evolving, well, you know, it's, 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 it's a bit of meat, perhaps if we could hunt. I mean, we, we didn't start off by, our ancestors didn't start off by hunting. We were mainly foragers. So a plant material or a little bit of meat, it's not a lot. You know, to get that calorific content, we would have had to spend all our time doing this just to feed ourselves. But actually, we used um, a trick. We used two tricks. So first of all, we relied on our group. So we didn't rely on just ourselves. We relied on our group. So that immediately you get this energy efficiency because what we're talking about is energy. The reason that we've managed to achieve all this is because we harness energy better than any other life form. And that's really the trick to our success as a species. Um, So in order to harvest the energy for our bigger brains, we needed to use another technology. We, Apart from relying on the group, we also had to rely on the external energy of fire. So cooking our food immediately gives us access to much greater calorific efficiency. We didn't need to eat so much to get the same bioavailability of those calories. But of course, we're not born knowing how to cook. So, you know, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. We had to learn how to do it. So our brains had to be big enough and evolved enough for us to be able to take that knowledge from something else, from from our friends and relations around us, from our group. So the whole thing is a cooperative venture we are this cooperative venture we're not you can't consider us as individuals you have to consider us as part of this community as part of this group effort this group brain and the group the physicality of the group as well we don't hunt alone so we're relying on the group to um, learn and how to cook our food, to learn how to hunt, to actually carry out the hunt physically and to feed ourselves. And that meant we could rely on the group. For example, when when a mother is giving birth, she doesn't have to also hunt and she doesn't have to also supply all the needs that this big baby with big baby brain needs as well as her own needs. She can rely on the group to support her. In fact... The brain grew so big that um, it became very, very difficult to give birth because we really reached that limit of what the mother's pelvis could expand to and still be able and still for her to be able to run and hunt. And as someone who has given birth twice, I have to say that limit has definitely been reached and perhaps overstretched. And as a result, we rely on others to give birth. We're a species that cannot give birth alone. So we cannot feed ourselves alone. We cannot give birth alone. We're really quite an extraordinary species already just looking at those things compared to chimpanzees well i did i was going to use the 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 giving birth thing as as an example of there are certain evolutionary things that happen to us that you might otherwise think were bad things that would be would work against us for instance you know the narrowness of the birth canal and the and the hips but also one of the things you talk about is how our our jaw evolved to be sort of you know much smaller not the jaw of basically something that hunts with its mouth and eats raw meat basically and again these things seem to be 
disadvantages in some ways but obviously then coupled with the you know the idea of the collective they started to you know started to to help us evolve i want to talk about other reasons why we got there and i guess environmental changes that might have happened to very early hominids that basically also set us off down that path yeah so so yes we did we we evolved in a way that considering we're predators we're essentially apex predators and we evolved in a way that our actual bodies our biology becomes worse so as and is as individuals we're actually really poor hunters and what we use instead and which i consider as part of our bodies is our technologies and also our cooperative learning and our cumulative cultural evolution basically so in the place of claws and jaws we have uh, obsidian knives and tools and slingshots and weaponry and in the place of these uh, jaws and enormous guts to digest our food we have fire and cooking and those sorts of things. But how did this, um, how, what sort of um, triggered this? Well, I think it's really important and really very rarely recognised the role that environment played in our genesis as a species. So I call it the human evolutionary triad and this idea that there is this co-evolutionary process between our environment, our biology, our genes and our culture. And these three feedback mechanisms are really what has created uh, humanity it's what's created us and so the role of the environment for example is really important in starting all this off so we emerged from a forested ecological niche that was our habitat early on in our ancestries and then when the climate changed, it became drier and we got these um, spells with open savanna and the herbivore um, population increased. It became much more, uh, th- there became much more easy pickings out there. It became lower energy process for us to get our food from the savanna. And so we became savanna hunters. We, we came down from the trees. We, our anatomy changed and we became walkers, runners even. Our entire spine and body changed for that. We have this S-shaped spine which supports running we have we're able to run long distances but um, hand in hand with this uh, anatomical change is also the cultural change which allowed us for example to plan ahead that we might need water and to carry water in pouches so it's this that has given us this ability to outrun um, other species in endurance so we can we sweat but we replace our water so we're able to outrun antelopes for example, over many hours, whereas they collapse from heat exhaustion because they don't carry their own water. I want to come back to to fire. Um, You mentioned, obviously, the fundamental idea that, you know, this helped us discover that we could cook food and therefore, you know, it was easier to digest. It's sort of hard to imagine that somewhere out there on the savannah there was like a hominid ancestor that first came across, and I I presume, you know, a, a natural fire that had sort of devastated part of the landscape and killed some animals and he stumbled across an animal and picked it up and it was tasty. I mean, we found we found evidence for um, foraging, our foraging early ancestors basically coming across uh, the charred remains mm-hmm. of natural fires um, and eating eating those kind of barbecued meats. And I guess what would have happened, I mean, fires would have been more likely anyway. And I guess what happened is that our ancestors learnt to 
seek those fires and and there's actually um there are actually wild animals that do that so there's um particular kind of corvid in australia which starts fires deliberately so it will take it will look for a natural bushfire and then it will carry a burning twig from that and start a fire elsewhere because when there are fires you get small animals fleeing the fires but you also get the charred remains so it's 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 um an excellent buffet and um if birds can do that it's really not big stretch to imagine our intelligent ancestors doing that but the trick really was learning how to start fire and to keep it going and once we learned how to do that and once we taught it to each other we were an entirely different creature we were something that had never existed before and we were able to completely transform our landscape. Just as an aside, this chapter begins with a little sort of scene-setting story of you driving through a, an Australian bushfire, which is incredibly prescient as to what's just recently happened. Tell us about what happened. Yeah, so I'm half Australian, actually, so I, I've spent quite a lot of um, my life in Australia. And um, this was in northern Queensland, uh, and it's happened a few times, actually. But the first time it happened, I was alone in the car and it was terrifying, really terrifying because it's the it's the speed that you don't if you're not used to it. It's it's really hard to understand how quickly a landscape can change. And obviously this was already speeded up because I was traveling down a highway. And uh, at first I just noticed um, a little change in the color of the landscape, a little bit of smoke, but I didn't really think anything of it. There are lots of sugarcane fields which are quite. Uh, easy to catch fire but also the the bush in Australia is pretty is very receptive to fire the, the oily barks and the oily leaves and so I was driving along and suddenly I was engulfed and I don't know what was the sensible thing to do should I have reversed back and tried to get I didn't know what to do and I I was frozen in fear and that stretch of being completely surrounded by this deathly presence apart from my little cocoon of a car and the tiny bit of oxygen in that was it stayed with me and and those moments seemed to last a much longer period of time than they actually did it must have been a few seconds I put my foot down and outpaced it and it was soon behind me. Um, a lot of people are not that lucky, you know. I've been watching the news and um, that might not have been the sensible thing to do. I don't know. Presumably what I should have done is, is get away from that. But it really, it's not very often in our day-to-day lives that we are confronted by the violence and the the terror of the natural world. You know, it's not every day that we will face an aggressive predator like a lion or um, a volcano will erupt, or there'll be a huge fire, although these are becoming more common. And so when it happens, you get this very primal terror, this real fear that something much bigger than you, your experience, your natural experience, is, is engulfing you. And it's really frightening. It's really frightening. And our ancestors would also have had fear of fire, but they learned to, they learned to use it, that power, that raw energy. And that's what it is. It's energy. The book also contained one of those, to me, facts that, you know, it had never occurred to me and it's quite sort of mind-blowing that not only was there a time before our human ancestors discovered fire or utilised fire, there was a time on this planet before fire. Yeah, that's true. So fire requires three things. Oxygen, a fuel and um, a a temperature that's hot enough for um, ignition to occur. And there was a time when these didn't occur. 
right? So um, when the Earth was formed, there was very little oxygen in the atmosphere, for example. And it also took a long time before there was enough vegetation for anything to burn because initially it just rained, rained and rained and rained and we got the oceans. But, so there was no vegetation. It was wet and it was cold. And there were times when fires would have, uh, would have been really, really common because there was a high temperature, high oxygen level and lots of flammable things and fires would have been incredibly common. And there was a time when fires would have been quite rare. We're living at the moment in um, a relatively cool period of time but with lots of flammable things and 20% oxygen so fires are not as common as they have been in the past but they're common enough for us to use them so we're really lucky that we evolved in a landscape where fire is even possible Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Gaia Vince, and we're talking about her latest book, Transcendence, how humans evolved through fire, language, beauty, and time. And Gaia, I want to move us on to, moves on from fire to storytelling which is a god link as storytelling tended to happen around the fire yeah so and that still happens mm. if you look at if you look at analyses that have been done on uh, on people that still gather around fires hunter gatherers and i mean most communities it's it's only quite recent that we you know live in our radiator worlds with <laughs> with um, a sofa and a television quite often the focal point would have been the fire and those times of the day tend to be dominated by storytelling and storytelling is it evolved 
really for two reasons. One is um, this community aspect, this idea of drawing people together. It's a really important tool for that. And you have to remember that our whole evolution is dictated by the uh, strength of our community. So we are nothing if we are alone. We can't survive alone. You know, as we've seen, we can't create a fire, we can't feed ourselves, we can't even give birth alone. We, are, we depend entirely on our group and the cohesiveness of our group, the strength of our group gives us the strength that we have to survive as individuals. The stronger our group, the more likely we will survive. So our survival depends on the group survival. So anything that boosts that is really important. And so storytelling does that because it gives this narrative that people uh, relate to. It's a way of understanding other points of view, of, of making this, this group narrative that we can all identify with. But stories also do something else that's really important. They're a way of passing on our culture, our ideas, our technologies, our tools, our values, important cultural knowledge is transmitted through storytelling. It's, it's much more memorable than if it's just given to you as a stream of data. If, you, if it's embedded in a story, you understand and you remember it much better and you're much more able to pass it on and much more able to remember it well to pass on because all of our cultural knowledge, it has to be passed on, it has to be transmitted accurately or you don't get that transmission um, over the generations and evolution culture cumulative cultural evolution is is impossible unless you have that that really accurate transmission it's the same with our genes you know if we if we put in loads of mutations and if um, if we disrupt the way that genes are transmitted over generations we won't get evolution because we don't get anything to select i want to come back to a a really vivid example of of one of those I mean, a technique to, well, the technique to grind bread, that a uh, certain bread that the Aboriginal Australians use, which is something that, you know, could not have been stumbled across by one person and needs to be retained. But to get us to that, let's talk about the, the sort of incredible tradition of the songlines, which you talk about in the book, because, um, again, it's an incredibly vivid example of literally how the idea of the story has helped them to survive extinction. Yeah, so Aboriginal groups, their culture is embedded in song lines, but not just their culture, their their entire landscape. It's a navigation tool. So every everything is understood, their ancestral history, the way they understand the stars, the way they understand the landscape, the way they learn all their techniques. Everything they do is embedded in song lines. These are stories that are passed down over the generations through the group, um, they're often sung. Each group has their own language and the storylines are in those language, their languages, but they also use easily understood phrases and that um, are then that can be understood by other tribes. And this has really helped Aboriginal groups survive incredible hardship. If you consider that um, the first people arrived in Australia around 65,000 years ago, that was a completely different world. They dispersed, their cultures um, uh, diversified in complexity and um, they developed all different languages and all different cultures. But everything was kept in song lines. So these stories were passed down and, and the cultural knowledge of where to eat, where the water holes were, how to make a fishing net, how to make nardu bread, for example, from this um, kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a seed pod, actually, of a, of a kind of um, algae, a kind of water weed. And all this knowledge is passed down. And when the, when the environment changed, 
as it did, we got ice ages uh, where there was um, massive drought, where the sea levels changed and where food was really, really scarce. It was the song lines that contained within them this great diversity of knowledge. So they had knowledge of what to do in times when they might have found themselves near the ocean, how to fish, how to do that, even if they hadn't ever experienced that um, in their lives before. They had knowledge of where to go to find water in drought areas and they were able to pass that knowledge and keep that keep those transmission lines open between groups uh, which was so important yeah and we find the archaeologists have found the uh, grinding stones from seed pods um 12,000 years ago you know um it's really amazing and this bread is basically fundamentally poisonous unless you you carry out some quite yes. esoteric so processes all of these on it. the the importance of this knowledge of cultural knowledge generally that's passed down is that it's not as individuals we would not be able to know all the different things if you look around you now there is nothing that you would be able you would not be able to in your lifetime recreate the complexity of just what's in this one room yourself The only way you could do it is if you're told and the tools are passed down and the materials and how to get it and all those all that knowledge and all of that, uh, the complexity of getting the resources and assembling them and how it all works is passed down to you. And that knowledge has itself been selected over generations, just as genes have been selected over generations so that you get this um, selective adaptation and the and, you know, the survival of the fittest knowledge. In other words, so nardu is a seed which is actually poisonous if you if you eat it raw. So in order to make bread over generations, Aboriginal people have learned exactly the technique of sluicing the nardu to get rid of this um, this poisonous enzyme, of grinding it, of sluicing it some more, of cooking it to a certain temperature and all of that so that it becomes nutritious rather than deadly. And the uh, chemical formula of nardu and why it kills you is not something that any individual Aboriginal ever knew or ever discovered. It was discovered incredibly recently and yet it works because that knowledge has been passed down over generations. They don't have to know the reason it works, just this is the way to do it. This is the ritual that uh, results in the bread and this is how you make the bread. Obviously connected to complex storytelling is the development of language as well as another tool that i want to talk about some ways in which language is one of the one of the things that helped us on the way and particularly in the way that i mean i guess as someone who's monolingual it's sort of difficult to understand that there are languages that you know tonal non-tonal languages you talk about for instance in which they change your whole sort of cultural outlook depending on the way that the language works yeah so that's something that's something that I talk about throughout the book, the fact that we make ourselves. So when I was talking about these feedback loops between environment, biology and culture, they really do feedback. So the environment, the cultural developing bath, I describe it as, that you are, you're immersed in since birth really sets your your neural pathways how you see the world how you behave how you react what you think of as normal what you think is beautiful or what your values are what you think is um, disgusting or rude or um, important or even the colors you see all sorts of things it's really quite strong and language is a fundamental part of that so in some some languages which are um 
all languages as they evolve and languages do evolve have uh, words for colors and they start off with the words for black and white and then normally there's the color red is defined given a word probably because our blood is red um, and then increasingly other colors crop up we used the same we used pink orange all these different other colors they essentially meant red until recently they were not um, separate colors but the colors that you had that you name actually define your biology in a way because it's the colors that show that it's it's the the colors that you know in 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 cultures which name the color blue for example people who who use that have are much better at discerning blue in a in a color palette than people who don't have a word for it and people who whose culture defines different shades of black and white. So we have grey, black and white. Well, other cultures have many, many more shades um, that they define in between. And they're much, much better at discerning within a colour palette where the different shades are, whereas we can't see it. We just can't see it as well. And that, that moves um, across, uh, across languages to, for example... I think we in English we're more likely to um to find a causative agent for something. So if there is a cup on the table and uh somebody knocks it off and it falls to the ground, we would remember that somebody knocked it to the ground. Whereas in Japanese the cup would just fall to the ground. We don't need the causative agent. And so Japanese speakers find it less easy to remember who did the action. Yeah, so so basically the 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 idiosyncrasies of the language that that we have um evolved to that that have evolved to be spoken by us completely change our outlook and the way that we see things. And 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 we see that happening artificially as well where people people try and define things in order to draw attention to them. Um we have that at the moment it's going on massively within within sort of gender identity but it's also going on with um various sort of ways that people feel or people are being discriminated against. It's very important to to make those words known because once those words are said you think about them differently. I want to talk about again something that doesn't necessarily seem vital to survival or to you know to our evolution which is appreciation of shiny things basically trinkets beauty um and like symbolic works of art what part did you know when did these come along and what part do they play yeah so that's another way that we're very very different from all the other animals in that we attach symbolic value to things which are subject it's a subjective value so we we decide something is beautiful and we beautify things and we spend an enormous amount of time and energy and money and money trying to make something beautiful that doesn't need to be beautiful and um you know if a if a hand axe is more beautiful than another hand axe it's not going to be more effective you know um a necklace isn't going to feed us gold is not going to keep us warm or protect us and yet these are so valued in our culture and that's really it's really important it's been a really massive driver of our evolution because once we agree as a group to um attach value to something it it becomes meaningful and we seek meaning and purpose in everything we do we could die for our art we imbue things with a value that they they don't have an objective value and that's that's just as important and what it's meant is it's enabled us 
to ha- reduce the energy costs of all sorts of all sorts of transactions. So if you think that animals are basically limited to their ecological niche, they're limited by the resources they can obtain, um, whether that's uh, the food they need to eat or the shelter they need to make. And when that runs out, well, bad luck. Whereas we can live very far from our ecological niche. Um, where I live, you know, I certainly don't rely on everything in my small square footage um, to provide me with food, um, energy, everything. Everything I have, I rely on my much wider group. And when I say the group, I mean the world, really. You know, I'm eating bananas from the Caribbean. I'm eating um, whatever, uh, meat from somewhere else or beans from wherever. So rice, energy, everything has come in. And so what we're doing is we're not obtaining our resources from where we are. We are able to obtain our resources from much, much further afield. And that happens through trade. And if you just had to swap, barter one thing for another, you're very restricted. Because, you know, you, you, you might want um, uh, an axe to, uh, to kill a buffalo and then you give the meat to the person that gave you an axe. So you swap one for another. Well, that's all fine. But what about if there's, uh, there's no buffalo in the area, but you still need to eat? Well, you've got your axe, but the only thing available is potatoes. Well, the potato grower doesn't need to it doesn't need an axe. So what are you going to do? So really, the, our love and the value that we place in these um, in in the subjective value we place in these essentially inert things like beads and trinkets is incredibly useful to us because we can use that as payment. We can use that to lower the energy costs, lower the risk involved. So if I've got an axe and I want to eat and there's no buffalo, but there's potato, I can say, look, I will give you my beads. You give me the potato and then later we can do a deal, you know, on buffalo meat or something. But those beads are a transaction. They're a deposit. They're an insurance policy. And so that really that enabled us to trade much wider with complete strangers where you don't have to trust the person. You don't have to be sure that you can they'll make good on their transaction at a later date. You can use you can use trinkets. Just to finish us off then, you just talked about, you know, this idea that we are now a global group. You know, we source foods and energy from all around the globe. And in the last book, we talked about the Anthropocene, the you know, the time of humans and the fact that, you know, we are, you know, physically changing our environment and changing changing the planet. And, and towards the end of the book, you talk about, you know, the connected world and, and where we're going and a new species of man, for want of a better word, hom- uh, homo omni tell us something about homni so evolution accelerates um cultural human cultural human cumulative cultural evolution it relies on um a population so um the bigger the population the more cultural knowledge there is the more technologies ideas and all those sorts of things um are held by the group and the better the connectivity um means the the more likely um, you are to um, connect with somebody who has another technology that can then you can then combine these ideas to produce a new one. So generally, over time, what seems to happen is the bigger the group and the greater the connectivity of the group, the faster the evolution, the more culture. You get these cultural explosions in uh, complexity and diversity, and that's happened in the past. And right now, what's happening is this this really extraordinary moment where 
we are we are entering this time where we have this enormous population of more than seven and a half billion and we're more interconnected globally than ever before so we can exchange ideas um, we can um, exchange technologies beliefs and we're coming together with all these things and uh, we're getting this um, explosion in new products and new ideas um, and at the same time our environment is completely changing because of us so I kind of I think that this is really an extraordinary time. I think we're hitting this tipping point in human evolution and things are changing and we are acting less as individuals, less as um, small societies and more as this great big marauding super species, which really is changing the environment. And it, it's creating, yeah, the Anthropocene, the age of humans um, and pushing us into this in this different direction. And so um, I call this super organism homo omnis, sort of all man, this kind of like really big um, idea. And so I, I shorten it to homni and I, I think of it as a kind of, um, as a toddler sort of blundering around. And at the moment we don't know where we're going and we're, you know, we're raising the temperature of the atmosphere and we're um, throwing plastic into the oceans and we're causing this great extinction and so on. But we're also, um, we're also producing a much safer environment for a lot of humans in other ways. So uh, we have uh, this, incredible uh, new agriculture and new medicine that keeps people alive and fitter much longer and much better so so all these things are happening at the moment and I don't know where where Homni will take us but we're at the beginning of this and, and it's a very unequal society you know some people really are at the very edge of of Homni they're kind of outliers on the on the outside of the network very unable to they don't have the agency to sort of shift the general sort of movement of this big super organism they don't have um, internet connectivity or they don't they struggle to feed themselves they don't have enough fresh water and others really are right at the center and they they have a lot more power and they're much better connected so um to me really this is a this is a dangerous situation and um we need to we need to remember that that through our history humans have thrived because of the group and because of the diversity of the group the diversity and when i talk about diversity i'm talking about um cultural diversity the different ways of thinking you know the aboriginals um who survived these great ice ages which killed enormous numbers of species in australia they managed to do that because within their cultural knowledge bank, within those within those song lines, um, really were a great diversity of ideas, knowledge and beliefs. And um, whether it's to do with following the stars or knowing how to make seed pods. And that's what we're going to need as a global society, too, as a global superorganism. We're going to need all these all this different knowledge and all these different strategies. So I've been talking to Gaia Vince. We've been talking about her latest book, Transcendence, how humans evolve through fire, language, beauty and time, which is out now in the UK from Alan Lane. Gaia, thank you so much for coming in and telling us about it. Thanks for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.